and welcome to the Hello Live podcast brought to you by the Hello Foundation. I'm your podcast host, Kelly Bodden, and I'm a speech language pathologist based in Portland, Oregon. You will receive 30 minutes of free CEUs for listening to this episode in its entirety. I'll give you instructions on how to document your participation at the end of the episode. I'll also tell you how to get in touch with any questions or comments you have for us. But for now, sit back and enjoy the show. My name is Wendy Gunter. I'm a speech language pathologist and I work in pediatric acute care and um, have worked um, in an outpatient pediatric multidisciplinary feeding clinic as well. So even though I currently um, work in a school-based system as well, and that'll be the focus of my talk, I feel like I bring both pieces of um, that perspective into developing a feeding plan. Um, Our learning outcome for today is to really put ourselves in the place of if you're a school-based speech-language pathologist and you come across a student with dysphagia in your work setting, what steps do you need to take to prepare yourself to um, really address that student's need and complete a safe feeding protocol so that the student is as safe as possible at school? I really don't have many references um, outside of the ASHA website. There's a pediatric dysphagia portal. So the things that I reference, um, such as the roles and responsibilities, um, are all within um, ASHA's website and can be found pretty easily if you go to that portal. So I'll begin my talk to give kind of a frame of reference um, for this discussion through how, why are we talking about this? And I think it's important to recognize that really for both the medical field and the profession of speech language pathology, dysphagia has been a a more recent development. It really only came into play in the 1980s. So people, um, those of us in the profession who were trained um, earlier than that or even later than that, it wasn't a core part of our training. So not all of us were expecting to have to address dysphagia within our workplace. Um, But of course, it is very clearly within our scope of practice. Um, The reason that school-based speech pathologists are currently struggling with this issue is because we um, now have students that have dysphagia they're in the schools and really it's part of their least restrictive environment to be able to attend school to eat at school to be part of the cafeteria mealtime experience that really we serve as a, a in the same way that communication gives them access to the school and the curriculum so does being well nourished and feeding safely um, it makes that experience for that student a key piece to that. Um, And I think it hasn't been an issue so much in the past because we know that the prevalence of pediatric dysphagia in general has increased. We now have um, very low birth weight babies, medically complex children that have an increased survival rate. So then the prevalence of these Um, individuals then becoming part of our school-based population is much more of an issue than it used to be. Um, And so I think that that division that there used to be between 
being a medical speech language pathologist or a school-based um, speech language pathologist really is an artificial division that really doesn't um, exist so much in the field anymore. And in fact, we know from um, the roles and responsibilities that we are supposed to, you know, that is definitely our role to diagnose pediatric dysphagia, to extract information out of our bedside or clinical swallow eval and talk about how that function affects that person and to be able to um, conduct a comprehensive assessment that looks at all the, the pieces that we need to bring together, that this is something that we're um, expected to do as part of our profession. Um, I think two bullet points from the roles and responsibilities um, within pediatric dysphagia that are particularly important to this talk are, one, to recommend a swallowing and feeding plan for daily management of swallowing and feeding activities that is referenced in the individuals in the IEP or the IFSP or the 504. So that's one of the things that is our role. Um, and another is um, recommending related services when in when necessary for daily classroom management and therapy. So we really are expected to be an integral part of that interdisciplinary feeding and swallowing team and to help assess and control, be part of that risk management and to collaborate with the all the other professionals to really help serve that student well. I think it's important to know as well that our code of ethics says that we have to hold that the welfare, that first principle of ethics, we have to, to hold the welfare of the people that we serve paramount. And so you can't really as a behave ethically and know that a student on your caseload is at exhibiting signs of aspiration and that that's not being managed, you can't really turn a blind eye to it. You can't say, oh, I'm a school-based speech pathologist or, oh, I'm only comfortable with articulation and uh, kind of hope that you get a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, you actually have an ethical responsibility to deal with it. You might not you know, because, of course, the other part of that catch-22 would be that you have to be competent in that service. So you may not be able, like, right on the spot to do something um, with that, but you need to still protect that individual and to make sure that they're served well and, and be that liaison if you aren't the person who actually is going to provide that service. Um, another piece that... that kind of pushes this in our face when we're in a school-based setting is that we are um, part of the system that um, we need to protect the, the kids that we serve. And just from a more global perspective of um, being mandatory reporters of um, neglect, um, most states have something like all citizens have a responsibility to protect who the those who cannot protect themselves. So we we also are looking at vulnerable populations, um, and as we do that, we may come across situations where we have a child that even if the parent isn't advocating for safe swallowing, we know something about dysphagia and we have to step forward and protect this child. 
Um, in fact, I, I had a, a recent student, a high school student, um, that I think makes a good case for this. Um, I He's in a self-contained classroom in a high school and has uh, cerebral palsy. And I was in the classroom for other reasons. He's on my caseload, but I'd, I'd just gotten to know um, the classroom and the students in it. And was serving one student while he was being fed and he was exhibiting frank signs of aspiration. He, he had some color changes. I could hear him coughing and becoming kind of wet and gurgly. Um, and so that was a, another situation where I thought, Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, this kid's on my caseload. So the next step was I was, I kind of dove into his history and he didn't have an existing safe feeding protocol. Um, so definitely that kind of got the ball rolling for me in a situation where it wasn't necessarily nobody was referring him to me um, or even very concerned about his nutrition and swallowing, but I couldn't choose to ignore that. So now that we've talked about the history a little bit, I'd like to move into um how you could take some first steps. So you really need to get the the lay of the land, so to speak, as a school-based speech pathologist. Um, if you have a student that has either been referred to you, or um, in the as in the scenario I just described, it, you come across a child who you believe um, may need um, a safe feeding protocol while they're eating at school. Um, the the first step that I take is to really start to identify my team and the the personnel resources that are available to me. Those really vary a lot within a district, and so um, that is something you'll have to explore right away because it may not even be your job. Your district may contract with an ESD feeding team, or um, the school district itself may have a feeding team. Um, uh, some states have like a regional assessment center where that's, you don't necessarily as the individual take that initial step for assessing dysphagia. Um, and also people within your building too. Maybe there's a school nurse who's already aware or already working on the issue. PTs and OTs certainly, um, even if they haven't made any steps, um, with that student, they, um, may have some things to contribute. Um, other speech pathologists within your district or system may have um, already started something or may know who takes on that role within their team. Um, medical teams in particular really welcome that interaction from um, the school-based personnel, really as the person who is um, feeding them or in daily, you know, contact with them. It's pretty typical that you're having maybe three mealtime experiences, like two meals and a snack within a school day. So you get much more frequent contact about what's baseline for the student than someone who assesses them clinically um, and has less of that, um, what's their typical mealtime experience. So you you would find if, if you were able to get a release of information that then you're able to access information like it, most, 
recent modified barium swallow studies and fees. And um, a lot of times that's your only ask, access to a pediatric dietitian. So it, it's really a reciprocal relationship that benefits um, both of you. And um, some districts have social work who take up the the interaction with the parents and really smooth that out. Um, psychologists, you'll be interacting with cafeteria workers. And then, of course, um, the special ed teacher, or the special ed case manager, um, as well as the people who would be feeders. So all those people might have different pieces of the history um, and different perspectives on the interaction on how you are at this particular junction with the student. So that's going to be kind of your first step in getting a sense of what needs to be done. Um, I think the next step is to really know what you don't know, figure out what has and hasn't been done, getting a history from the parents. They may just hand over a lovely report where they've just been um, to uh, the uh a multidisciplinary feeding clinic. Um, an example of this for me was I had a, a child with a seizure disorder uh, who's in second grade and was on a 504, and our team was considering eligibility for um, special ed. And with he had a fairly poorly controlled seizure disorder, like seized most most of the night, um, pretty typically, and he was dysarthric. And so I was a little suspicious that there might be some dysphagia. And so I asked mom, you know, some screening questions. And sure enough, she has already twice done the Heimlich on this little guy for an obstructed airway. So you, you already start to figure out some of those pieces that you have to put together. Um, and then Another piece that you need before you really move forward on a specific student would be to understand the district's policy on um, feeding protocols, um, what procedures they have in place, and get, have that conversation with your administrator. So in the case of the um, high schooler with cerebral palsy that I was talking about, um, when I figured out that not much had been done, the parents... Um, had never taken him to a feeding clinic. He, he, by everyone's account, had never been assessed for dysphagia um, or his aspiration risk. Um, I had a gentle conversation with the administrator saying, hey, you know, this is where, where I'm headed. I'm going to move slowly. I'm going to really work with my team so that we're um, addressing this issue. But he needed to know that, that I couldn't just let that issue sit. I can't be aware of that and not protect this child. So at, if you kind of move through that decision tree and you've, okay, gathered your information, figured out who your team is and what information you need to get on this student and what the policies and procedures are, it's not uncommon in a smaller district to find that no, there's no protocol in place. So then you kind of move to that next step. And sometimes the answer is no, there's no feeding team. And then it's possible that you then say, well, has this child's um, 
feeding and swallowing ever been assessed? And the answer might be uncomfortably no. And so that's kind of at the point that I think this discussion really centers around, which is, gosh, here I am. There's no policies and procedures for me to follow. I don't have any direct access to a, you know, a school-based feeding team. And this kid has not been assessed. What do I, what do I do now? Um, so if there was a medical assessment, your um, safe feeding protocol can essentially be those recommendations from that report. You, there's no reason for you to really um, start anywhere but there as the core of your feeding plan. So that is a lovely place to start if you have um, something like that. And then um, you would move through starting to um, develop your feeding protocol just through a, a clinical feeding eval. Um, typically, um, I'll start off with um, the baseline history, which you had gathered anyways when you met with the family so and, and did the record review. So what what is the medical diagnosis? That, that's often your tip-off to what else might be going on. Um, specifically, what is the swallowing diagnosis? And you may end up coming up with that just through your um, clinical evaluation of the student. Do they have oral dysphagia or pharyngeal dysphagia? And what are you characterized by what? Um, you know, the, do they have poor bolus formation or are they... Um, buccal pocketing or limited oral containment, what are some of the issues that you've seen when you've watched them feed? Um, it's important to talk about food allergies because in a lot of ways this is because this becomes the script for your team to follow when feeding this child and there may be like a substitute para, you need to mention things like medications and who could administer those if they're given orally at school. Um, and and then talking about what you can't feed this student. So, um, you know, is it no hard foods, no mechanical soft? Is it um, what what things can't this student eat? And what their preferred foods are. You know, do they like oatmeal or spaghetti or what? What are some of the their go to foods? Um, especially if they are self limiting in their diet. That's important and recognizing of course that this is a living document that changes um, but having that foundation there for people to refer to becomes really important um, the next thing that I typically put in my safe feeding protocol is contraindications for feeding so what what do people need to know about not to feed when not to feed that student and you know if they have seizures, well, not after a seizure. Or what are your parameters for your signs of aspiration for this student? Or, um, you know, of course, being sleepy or sick or, um, you know, really color changes or getting to know that student's baseline and what their signs of struggle or their particular difficulties are really helps weed that out for the familiar and the unfamiliar feeder. Um, 
then I I tend to describe in detail the the feeding procedure and at this point, I think it becomes particularly a multidisciplinary document. So, you know, what what does this person need to do to prepare um, before feeding? Gathering any specific utensils and equipment. This is where your PT is going to help with, you know, wheelchair and tray and chest harness and positioning, or your OT may be saying a built-up spoon or... Um, making sure that the cup does or doesn't have handles, um, you know, your food thermometer, your, your general, um, universal precautions on top of just how this specific child is feeding at, at this time and then how to prepare the foods. Do they need to have access to a, a blender or a food grinder, um, microwave because of the temperatures, you know, what types of things do they need to have while they're preparing the food or while they're modifying food from the cafeteria? Um, I always embed universal precautions, so washing the hands of both the student and the adults after uh, as a step in there. Um, positioning, again, the PT or the OT or both on your team are going to talk about that. Um and, you know, gloves, making sure that the feeder you're training is, um, recognizes when they need to be gloved. Um, and how to offer foods. Do you place it on the tray? Do you give physical assistance? Um, again, I think as speech pathologists, we deal less with this um, part, although we're probably going to be speaking to things like rate um, and uh, how to help pace them. So, you know, is this a child that can't do sequential um, swallows of liquids? Well, then we're going to need to speak to that on how to offer it. Is it, you know, you offer a sip and then remove the cup or you tip it down or how are you pacing them externally? Um, You need to talk about what your aspiration precautions are. Um, I find that I typically add in oral hygiene in here. Um, if it's a student who is not independent with their activities of daily living. And then, um, you know, every once in a while I'll run across some idiosyncrasies. Like, um, I had noticed it a team was, um, when a student did a hard bite on the utensils, they would then pull, uh, to get it out, which I think we recognize, um, as uh, potentially harming him. And so we, we talked about how to get him to release. And so then I, I put that in the, the feeding protocol because whoever's feeding him is the person who needs to be, well, those individuals need to be trained on how to do that. Um, I typically add in something about how they communicate, especially things like fatigue if they're nonverbal, like what their signs are or um, how they indicate which foods are preferred or not preferred, um, as well as make a reference to the health protocol. Um, I think the other thing that kind of comes hand in hand with this is um, a feeding log. not always. I have a I have a student right now that it does have a safe feeding protocol, but he doesn't have a feeding log because there aren't any concerns about nutrition, and it's really more um, some 
modifications to his uh, presentation for aspiration precautions, but they're uh, so his textures are modified and his bite size is modified, but he's um, very independent and he's verbal and he doesn't typically ex exhibit signs of aspiration at school. There really aren't concerns about that. So um, as long as we're following the feeding protocol. So um, in that case, we don't track, um, his, we don't have a feeding log for him. So I think that that varies um from time to time. And then it's, I thought it was interesting to mention too, that, um, not every student ends up with dysphagia ends up with a safe feeding protocol. So I have a student with ataxia, telangiectasia, and, um, he's in middle school. So we know that that is a time where he, because it's neurodegenerative, that a lot of times we see that dysphagia emerge during this middle school time. And so I just have, I have him on a six month monitor um, so that we're able to be proactive should he need one. So there's kind of that whole spectrum of um, a safe feeding protocol where the student is being fed and where the diet is highly modified. And there are a lot of, um, precautions in place to really just kind of a monitor situation. So even I, I'd like to wrap this up by really talking about the discrepancy. I recognize that there is that discrepancy between best practice and what we know we need to do and, um, that ideal care that we want to provide every, um, student that we come in contact with versus the real world of what you can get accomplished um, based on your staff knowledge base and your administrator's flexibility and timeframes. But uh, hopefully this provides a framework for you to move through as you start to um, explore how to help children as best you can. Congrats, you just earned 30 minutes of CEUs approved by the Oregon State Board of Examiners. Wasn't that easy? To document your participation, please visit www.thehellofoundationschools.com slash CEU. You can also find the blog post for this and all of our episodes at www.thehellofoundationschools.com. This is the best way to get in touch with our guest with your questions and comments. And if you want updates about upcoming shows and opportunities to participate, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.